Chapter 5 is a lengthy condemnation of the Jews that is prefaced by a brief story. The story is of a man who is healed on the Sabbath. The Jews confront the man who is healed, and Jesus then preaches to them about the work that his father is doing. Now, there is much going on in this chapter, and here we have to limit ourselves to just three items of note. The first is the relationship between healing and the forgiveness of sins. The second is what the true Sabbath is. And finally, the witnesses to the work of the Messiah. What holds all three points together is a common theme. And the theme is this. Jesus is true Sabbath rest who, in his working, accomplishes the will of the Father. I'll say that again. The common theme in this chapter is Jesus is the true Sabbath rest who, in his working, accomplishes the will of his Father. The passage is therefore a record of the eschatological revelation of the Messiah, the revelation of the Messiah as he has arrived upon the field of redemptive history at the end, at the end times. It is the manifestation of the authority, the divine nature, and the power of the Son of God. Uh, This is what Ritterboss notes in his commentary on the Gospel of John, page 188. And as such, as a revelation of the authority and divine nature of the Son of God, this passage, this chapter has redemption as its special point of interest. The redemption of sinners from their sin and salvation from the death that that sin brings. Therefore, this passage, this chapter, is not itself really ultimately about the Sabbath, nor is it ultimately about healing as such. Rather, again here thinking about the comments of Ritterboss, All of this, all of the teaching here in this chapter is the occasion for the self-revelation of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no application that we can draw from this passage about our doctrine of the Sabbath. In fact, there is application. For in this passage, Jesus does not break the Sabbath law in his healing. Quite on the contrary, and here's the point of application, Jesus in his working actually fulfills the Sabbath law. And he does so with divine authority over and against his Pharisaical detractors. And in fact, the Pharisees are, by Jesus' teaching and actions, shown to be themselves the actual Sabbath breakers. That is because, as we'll see, true Sabbath rest, this side of glory, entails work. The Pharisees interpreted the Sabbath doctrine incorrectly, in a static fashion. And they would mount up all these extra laws around the Sabbath law, and in so doing, they believe they have hedged the law to such an extent that it would be impossible for them to break it. And so this resulted in an idea of the Sabbath and Sabbath rest as being functionally equivalent to inactivity. 
the least amount of work that you do on the Sabbath makes one the most holy, according to the doctrine of the Pharisees. But according to the doctrine of Jesus, Sabbath rest is not inactivity, quite the opposite. Resting means doing the will of God, even in the performing of work, particularly the work of necessity and mercy. Doing the will of the Father is the thing that we are to do on the Sabbath, even as we rest from our worldly occupations. So the Sabbath, then, is about life, dynamic life, the Christian life, the life of God's covenant people in activity to the service of their triune God. And we will see this as we unpack chapter 5. So first of all, taking these points of note in turn, let's talk about the relationship between healing and the forgiveness of sins. We'll see this unpacked for us in verses 1 through 18. Jesus is going to a feast in Jerusalem, and he comes to a pool called Bethesda. It means literally the house of mercy. And it's a popular place, as we can see here, for there is a multitude of people. The people here are mostly invalids. They're blind. They're lame. They're paralyzed. It was believed that this pool contained healing properties that people can come to to be cured of their various ailments. Now, Jesus sees an invalid laying there and who has been there for quite some time. He's there because he's not only immobile, but he's also alone. He has no one to help him down to the pool where he believes he can be healed of his disease. Now, Jesus' next words are surprising because he tells the man to get up, take up your bed, and walk, as we see in verse 8. And at once the man is healed, and he begins to walk. And the bed that once carried him, he now carries. But the Jews are quick to pounce. They rebuke this man for carrying his bed. The healed man explains that it was the man who healed him who told him to carry his bed. And of course, they want to know who the man is. Who would would tell you to do such a terrible, sinful thing as to get up and walk and carry your bed on the Sabbath? You see, this man, according to the Pharisees, is guilty of a double crime against the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath in being healed, and Jesus broke the Sabbath in healing. And then he broke, Jesus broke the Sabbath in commanding the man to carry his bed, to do something which is forbidden, according to the Pharisees, on the Sabbath. But the man did not know that the one who healed him was Jesus. But afterwards, Jesus runs into this man again. And he tells the man in verse 14, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, these words of Jesus, where he says, Go sin no more, can be easily misinterpreted. And so I hope to guide us here to avoid that misinterpretation. To that end, there are several things to note. First, 
talking about the relationship between healing and redemption. The healings, whether here in the Gospel of John or elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels, the healings are signs of the kingdom. They are genuine acts of divine mercy to the suffering, of course, but the healings are not and never were intended to be an end in themselves, certainly not intended as a model of ministry for the church today. In part, they intend to be external. They are uh, intended to be external and visible signs of the invisible eschatological grace of God in Jesus Christ. The physical healings then, in other words, point to spiritual healing. And here, the forgiveness of sins, the spiritual healing that is found in being pardoned of one's iniquity is what is in view. Second, while the forgiveness of sins is not stated here explicitly, it is implied. It's implied by the exhortation that Jesus gives the man, sin no more. The imperative that is given here, the command, sin no more, makes sense only if forgiveness of sins is presupposed. Jesus' ministry to this man, in other words, is more than physical. It concerns more than physical healing. He has revealed himself, Jesus has, as the Redeemer of this man. For the Lord is Israel's healer. And here we pick up the language of the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus 15, 26, 1 Samuel 6, 3, and Psalm 32, where the notion of God as the one who heals His people comes into view. Think also of Psalm 103, verse 3, the Lord is He who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. In this way, then, Jesus is manifesting himself. He is revealing himself as the healing Lord of the people of God who has come from heaven. Third, when Jesus says, and I quote, that nothing worse may happen to you, he is not indicating that there is some particular sin which directly led to this man's affliction. And this is where we might run into the danger of misinterpretation. As we read these words of our Lord, we might be led to think that what Jesus is indicating here is that there is a particular sin for which this man is being punished with his affliction. But that's not the case here. Jesus is not indicating that his affliction is a direct result of a particular sin, as if God here is punishing or judging the man for a particular sin he had committed in his life. That would clearly contradict what Jesus later says, particularly particularly in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 3, where it says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So you can see here how later on in chapter 9, Jesus completely disables this 
argument of his disciples that wants to say that there is a direct connection between a particular sin and the suffering of a particular person by saying, no, 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 you're thinking completely wrong about the whole thing. And of course, Jesus is not denying that there are times in the lives of image-bearing creatures when in fact our sin does lead directly to certain consequences that are unpleasant. But for us to jump to that conclusion is a conclusion that is really one that is forbidden by the teaching of the book of Job, because Job's friends draw very similar conclusions about Job's suffering. And Jesus here, of course, is right on point as he as he disarms the argument of his disciples that there is a particular sin behind a particular act of suffering. Herman Ritterboss, commenting on on our passage, is on point when he says this, and I quote, But the connection he suggests here is of of a more general kind and do not occur outside the circle of forgiveness of sin. Rather, They are the outflow of it, proof that in Jesus, God reaches out to humankind in its estrangement from God. That which Jesus gives is more than healing and relief from suffering. According to the warning addressed to the healed man, does not relate to a specific sin by which the man might bring a worse illness or accident, but nothing less than the judgment of God. It is in that sense that the statement, you are well, echoes the question, do you want to be healed? It is related not only to rising from the sickbed, but also to what Jesus was to call later the greater works of rising and making alive, for which the Father had given him all power. As he now addresses this man on the point of his sin, Jesus wants to open the eyes and the life of the man to that greater experience, indispensable also to him, lest it also be true of him that his last state should be worse than the first. In other words, what Ritterboss is saying, the warning is a call of Jesus to the man of faith and repentance. The something worse is eschatological judgment that is in view. The sin to which he is called to cease is the sin that has come before him, the sin of a life of unbelief, of currently being outside of union with Christ. Instead, the man is urged to believe on Christ and in believing on Christ to live forever. This is referring then ultimately to resurrection life in verse 21. This life Resurrection life is true life given from Jesus, the healer from heaven. Our second point from the chapter is the nature of what true Sabbath rest is. John explains why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. It was in part, according to John, because he was healing on the Sabbath, verse 16. But Jesus has already responded to them In verse 17, my father is working until now, says Jesus, and I am working. This response stoked the Pharisees' anger all the more. 
all the more in their self-righteous rage as our Lord confesses to them that He is working. He is working on the Sabbath. For He not only heals on the Sabbath, He is also calling God His Father, making Himself equal with God, and so really stoking the anger of the Pharisees by confessing that He works on the Sabbath and that in working on the Sabbath, He is identified with His Father in heaven, who is also working. Picking up on the work of the Father back in verse 17, Jesus goes on in verse 19, He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is making at least three things clear here. First, Sabbath rest does not mean idleness. The Father is working, and so is the Son. The Pharisees had a strange, perverted view of Sabbath rest. For them, Sabbath rest was taken sort of the way in which Nicodemus had taken Jesus literally in a literalistic fashion. Literally, rest, do nothing, don't move, don't exert yourself at all. And so what it amounted to, the Pharisees' view and observance of the Sabbath, was basically passivity, perhaps even laziness. But the command is not, the command to keep the Sabbath, according to Jesus, is not equated with the idea of laziness or passivity. Rather, the command to rest on the Sabbath is, according to Jesus, to cease from our ordinary labors. But in ceasing from our ordinary labors, we are to continue in our holy and moral callings. It is never wrong to do right on the Sabbath. We rest from our employments so that we can labor for God in acts of love, mercy, and necessity towards one another. And so we are to be about the works of necessity, mercy, and ministry on the Sabbath. It is not passivity, but it is holy activity that is in view on the Sabbath rest. The very thing that Jesus here does as he heals the man from his illnesses. Second, God is the Lord of the Sabbath, not man. God gave the Sabbath law to Israel, therefore, God himself is the only correct interpreter of the Sabbath. Jesus shows himself then to be the Lord of the Sabbath as he rightly, properly, correctly interprets and applies the law. He is the one who gave the Sabbath, therefore he is the one who rightly applies the Sabbath. For it is clear that while God rested from creating on the seventh day, he didn't become idle. How do we know that? Because Jesus says, my father is working even today, even now, still. The Father continued after He rested on the seventh day to govern 
the universe. After he entered into the seventh day of the Sabbath, he would continue his work of salvation for Adam when he fell. Do you think that Jesus takes a day off in the heavenly places, in the work of salvation once a week? No, Jesus never rests. He never sleeps or slumbers when it comes to his saving mercies that he shows towards his people. And so we know that as the Father is working, so also the Son is working, particularly in the work of salvation. Third, true Sabbath rest is heavenly rest. It is not so much physical rest from our labor, but it is rest from sin. It is to cease with regard to the corruption of human nature, to cease with regard to death itself. In other words, true Sabbath rest is redemption. True Sabbath rest is identical with resurrection life. True Sabbath rest, in fact, is heaven itself. It is the life in which we now enter by way of being healed from our diseases, namely our sin and the death that our sin brings. And now, finally, the last point I'd like to bring out from chapter 5 is with regard to the witnesses to the work of the Messiah, verses 30 to 47. Jesus is the true substance of the Old Covenant Scriptures. The Old Covenant Scriptures, they witness to Him. But the problem is the Jews don't see that because they are blinded in their unbelief. The Scriptures are perfectly clear. The vision of the Pharisees, however, is not. Jesus does what He is told. He is told what to do by the Father, verse 30. But how do we know that his testimony is true about the will of the Father? How do we know what Jesus has been saying about himself, his work, and the work of the Father, his relationship to the Father? How do we know that all of this is true? If it were only him who was testifying to himself, his testimony would not be true, verse 31. And here, once again, I want to highlight that word true. The word true here should be read as being from heaven. His testimony would not be from heaven. True and truth mark that which is heavenly in its origins. Once again, quoting from Voss, he says this, On this we obtain light by observing that the veritable things appear in a more or less clear association with heaven. The true spoken of here refers to then, to use again Voss's language, the supernal heavenly sphere. So there is only one then who bears true testimony to Christ, verse 32. While it is true that John bore witness to Christ, verse 33, Jesus does not receive his testimony from man, verse 34. So who is testifying to Christ. Whose testimony is the true testimony? That is to say, the testimony from heaven, 
heavenly testimony. The testimony of which Jesus here speaks then is greater than John's testimony. For the works that Jesus does, given to him by the Father, testify to the very fact that he, Jesus, is sent from the Father. Verse 36. In other words, his works, the works of Jesus, are from a heavenly source. For it is not just the works which witness to Jesus, but the Father himself from heaven bears witness. Verse 37. And just as an aside, we know this to be the case, don't we? That the Father is testifying to the Son and has been testifying to the Son all along at His baptism, and then again upon the Mount of Transfiguration. But here we take a serious turn. How does the Father bear witness to Jesus? Now, before we answer that, we need to take note of the fact that this testimony is something that the Jews do not believe. Seemingly, they would have heard the testimony from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. But there's another testimony that they refuse to believe. That's the point of this section of chapter 5. As Jesus here confronts the unbelieving Jews with their unbelief, with their darkness, with their darkness of mind, unable to read with comprehension the scriptures that they claim to study. Despite the fact that the Father has borne witness, Jesus tells them, you have not heard his voice. You have not seen his form. His word, says Jesus in verse 38, does not abide in you. In other words, despite all of their religious zeal, despite all of their proposed or supposed zeal for the Sabbath, they do not know the Lord of the Sabbath. They do not know the one who has commanded the Sabbath. They do not know him who is the origins of the Sabbath. This takes us to how the Father has indeed issued his testimony, his true testimony, the testimony from heaven. How has the Father testified to the Son? Jesus is explicit and clear here. The Father has testified to the Son in his word. You see, they think that, the Pharisees, that is, think that they have the word of the Father abiding in them. That is why. Because they are always searching the Scriptures. They're always looking into the Scriptures, seeking eternal life in the Scriptures, verse 39. But unfortunately, as our Lord explains, they don't have the eternal life that they search for. That is because the Scriptures that they search are bearing testimony and witness to Christ. But the Christ to which the Scriptures witness they refuse to believe in, verse 40. Now, follow the logic of our Lord here. If they do not believe in Christ, 
then they do not and they cannot believe in the scriptures which bear testimony to him. To deny faith in the Christ is to deny true faith in the scriptures because the scriptures speak of the Christ. They're zealous students of the Bible. They closely engage the text. They study it. They exegete it. They analyze it. They memorize it. It is as if they are PhDs in biblical studies. They are top-notch, higher critical scholars. Yet they do not know the God of the Bible that they study. Jesus pronounces their condemnation in verse 42. You do not have the love of God in you. He can say that because, why? Because they do not receive Him. And in not receiving Christ, they show themselves to be those of unbelief. They should know better. They have read the Word. They have studied the scriptures of the Father. They know the testimony of the Father by heart. And that means because they know better, that they are open to a true accusation from our Lord. For a day will come when they will have to give an account for the scriptures that they have studied, when accusations will justly be leveled against them. But it is not Jesus who will issue the accusation of a covenant lawsuit against them. Who will level that covenantal lawsuit against them? The answer is perhaps surprising. Moses is the one who will accuse them. Verse 45. And this reality will expose their hypocrisy. For when Jesus says that Moses accuses them, Of course, he doesn't have in view the person of Moses himself. Jesus is using the name of Moses as shorthand for the entirety of the Scriptures, particularly in view here, the Pentateuch, the law. The law that the Pharisees claim to be so zealous for will actually accuse them. It will show that they really actually never believed Moses to begin with. That is because had they believed what Moses said, had they actually read the Scriptures with the eyes of faith, they would also have believed Jesus because Jesus is the subject matter of the Scriptures. Verse 46, Jesus makes it very clear that Moses wrote of him, Jesus. And so, the Jews' problem is not first of all with Jesus. The problem that the Pharisees have fundamentally, primarily, is with Moses. Verse 39 is very clear that Moses and the Scriptures are one. Verse 47 indicates that believing the words of Jesus and those of Moses are the same thing. 
And to not believe the words of Moses is to not believe the words of Jesus. And to deny belief in the words of Jesus is to deny belief in the words of Moses. For the scriptures in verse 39 is the word of the Father. And that word does not abide in the unbelieving Jews. The word of the Father, the words of Moses and the words of Jesus constitute the one divinely authoritative revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the one authoritative true word, that true word that is from heaven. And so, the word of God is closely associated with bread, as we will soon see moving into chapter 6. As we move from the Word of God to now that bread that comes from heaven, we will find out very clearly that that bread which sustains unto eternal life and that Word which comes from heaven and gives eternal life are one and the same thing and have their coming together in a fundamental identity in the person and in the work of Him who is the bread of life, even Jesus.